Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast with me, Pete Wargent, as always. And as ever, I'm here with Stephen Moriarty in Brisbane. G'day, Steve. How's things? Good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So very excited today. Very special guest, Alan Edmonds down in Mossman. So 13 weeks of restrictions down there. But uh, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Alan, and welcome. Oh, thanks for asking me. It's, it's great to be on. I love to talk about investing so yeah he won't shut me up yeah it's something we've all got in common unfortunately and i think sometimes it's difficult to compress these shows because we'd probably talk all day if we were left to our own devices so um alan i think often um when we have people on the show Stephen and i talk a lot about the principles of investing and some of the rules that people follow but we wanted uh, specifically to get you on because uh you're known in um, social media circles for being somebody who does things his own way and does things a bit differently. But one of the things with social media, as we've seen over the years, is that sometimes it's the empty vessels that make the loudest noise, but you've always been uh, nicely understated in your communications. We've enjoyed reading your newsletters over the years. Um, So tell us a bit about your background and your bio for people who might not be familiar. I don't know, what, 30 years ago now, I came out of uni and I did geology and I went to Western Australia and found that that wasn't actually for me. I'm more a city person. I wanted a family and I saw all the people around me and I thought, you know, that's not for me. So I came back to came back to Sydney, did a master in, in accounting and finance, which is um, I've always, you know, liked numbers and enjoyed numbers. Uh, I married the perfect woman who said to me, you know what you're doing in the market. Here's everything that we have. You know, she trusts me to do that. And without her, I wouldn't have been able to do it, obviously. And, you know, things just went our way. And I started off as a Buffett connoisseur. I was very much into valuing balance sheets and that because that's my background as an accounting. Uh, I realised that I was pushing pushing it uphill with that because, you know, I'm going against all the big accounting firms and all the brokers and everything, they know it better than me, so I had to find an angle which, which you know, I was ahead of the game. And that's what led me to small caps because, you know, it's under-researched. Under uh, they don't, you know, the brokers don't pick it up till it gets bigger. That's my opportunity where I, you know, I thought I could slot in. And things, you know, things worked out that way and that's worked out well for me. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I, uh, as somebody who did an accounting qualification myself, originally a CA, it was exactly the same when I started out. You know, you kind of do what you know. And in fact, part of my job involved uh, auditing and then writing financial statements. So you think, right, well, this is my advantage. I know all the accounting standards. But I guess you quite quickly work out that there's much more to investing than just understanding a balance sheet. And like yourself, I had a crack in uh, the resources game for a while, but didn't fancy 
the travel and working away on camps all that much and uh, ended up back in Sydney myself. So quite a few parallels. I think that's one of the common threads as well that we get from a lot of our guests is that when people are sort of starting out in investing, you try all the different ways. You know, you, you have a go at day trading, you do the value style, but eventually you know, people find a way that works for them. So tell us a bit about where you've ended up in terms of your approach and principles and the types of strategies that you use now. Well, I think what you hit on is a very good point. I think you need to try all different things and you need to find something that's, you you know, I believe your own personality. You need to find things you know that you're good at. I found out that I'm not good, even though I did geology and geophysics. I'm not good at geology. I'm not. I'm not good at uh, resource sector because I just can't. My psyche or my emotional state is like you have to buy when when commodities are down, you know, on the ground, and then you have to wait and hope that they come good. That's not the way that I can invest. Okay. I can't sit for years in a, in a, you know, holding, hoping that something will go right. And the, and the other thing about that is you, you can have the best resource, you can have the best team there, and then the commodity never runs for years on end. So, and I and I say it a lot on, on social media that I have a big thing about time. I believe we have a limited time span in this in the market. You'll be good for five to ten years, and then you'll see that with most fund managers, they're good for a period, and then they run off. So, for me. I'm in my sweet spot, I'm doing well, and I want to make the most of it at that time. So basically I went into small caps because I realised, well, I guess everybody realises this, but not many people seem to invest in that. The big the big gains are made in the shortest period with that ramp up. And you, you know, you have a business, you have an idea, and then all of a sudden it starts to take off and revenue takes off, and that's when price starts roaring ahead because it sees... It, it, you know, the market envisages how big something can grow. And then that's what I thought, well, that's where I thought this is my niche. I can see that. You know, I've always been good at picking trends, but I didn't realise that the trends would be in, within the stock market. So I could see ideas and now I, now I read IPO documents, I look at companies. I don't have anything to do with the resource sector, so that whittles it down quite a lot. The way I work is I maintain lots and lots of records on everything. I look at 400 companies that that, that produce um, four Cs, which are cash flow statements for people that don't know that. That's one of the most amazing things when I started my website, just to, like I'm like to, to educate people as well about investing. That no one realised that there was four C statements, and I couldn't believe that they were investing and they didn't even know that there was cash flow statements coming out. And so I think the one thing that I've done is I've made people aware of cash flow statements <laughs> and then I realise how important that is. And as I said, I maintain a, a spreadsheet, 400 companies or roughly 400 companies that are actually making money or, uh, which have revenue. They're not actually making, not all are making a profit, not all are cash flow positive. And each quarter I update that and, you know, that's just the sort of thing I do. I, I try to maintain databases on everything that I can. So that's, I think that's what my edge is, is that I do the hard work. If you want to get into small caps, you've got to do hard work because no one else yeah. is doing it. Yeah, under, uh, understood. So uh, uh, looking in Australia, as you say, there's a lot of um, sort of smaller uh, resources companies. Some of them uh, don't make a profit. Some will never make a profit or even revenue yeah. in some cases. But if you're whittling those out, then uh, there's your pool of companies to get, get your teeth into. So I think um, interesting insight there. So I think if, if you're somebody who's managing your own money and you just want to get sort of solid or 
you know, reasonable or consistent returns. You follow the big macro commentators, you follow the principles of investing. But if you want to get great returns, you've almost got to throw that rule book out the window and go your own way and work out or tread your own path, so to speak. Uh, Steve, I know you had about 3,000 questions uh, for Alan on uh, his approach. So I'll flick over to you and uh, yeah. you can uh, talk us through how some of those micro caps can be the best place for returns and how you find those big 10 baggers. Yeah, just interesting listening to you, Alan, at the start where you said, you know, you started out as a Buffett investor. And I think a lot of people do, probably because he's got the highest profile. But it's amazing. The one thing that made, well, it's a few things about Buffett. The Buffett imitators, you know, like I sort of like you, I got invested, I got started and I read about Warren Buffett and went, right, you know, this is the way to invest. And the one thing I found was if you compound your money at 20% per year, you sort of think, wow, you know, that's a great return. But if you've got 10 grand or even 100 grand, you'd sort of go, well, geez, it's not exactly knocking the lights out. You know, even if you make 20,000 on 100,000, it seems to me that a lot of people who talk about Buffett as their, their mentor or, you know, I do a Buffett style, really don't make that big of money because, you you know, it's all right if you've got a billion, you can really start compounding with spectacular results. But with, with smaller amounts, I think, and like you, I, I drifted more away from that, oh, well, I'll just buy, you know, big quality value Buffett type companies and I'll, you know, set sail. And I really discovered, different to you, what I discovered was I'm bloody hopeless at small caps. Um, and every small cap I bought, was, there were two problems. One was I'd buy too much of it and the bloody thing had sink. <laughs> and so, you know, my 20 grand winner was was cancelled out by my 20 grand loser. Or the second part was it'd be a spectacular winner, but I'd have, you know, $5,000 in it sort of thing. So it didn't really move the needle that much. So yeah. when do you buy and sell? Do you sort of look at it and go on the fundamentals or do you go hit the 200-day moving average and it's looking a bit iffy? Or like how do you buy and sell on what sort of fundamental criteria or that sort of thing? Well, I'll tell you straight up, I did exactly the same thing. I used to do all sorts of weird stuff. I'd average <laughs> down and I'd lose money. And, yeah, I think I've done everything possibly wrong. Something about Warren Buffett that you said, which I found really interesting, because, I, you know, I was hoping to do a little bit better. When I first started out, I'll be Warren Buffett. I won't be able to do 22% a year, but I might be able to do 18 19%, which is good. Anyway, and then I read something he said to me, look, if I only, he said, if I only had to manage a million bucks, I reckon I could do 50% a year, yeah. guaranteed. And then I thought, well, I don't even have a million bucks <laughs> to start <laughs> off with. And I thought, but, you know, I should be able to do that. I shouldn't be looking for this these small amounts. And like you said, you know, I started late. I guess we started about 30, investing rather than really early because I had other things on in my life. Yeah, no, I, I did everything wrong that you could do wrong. I can't, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, I think the good thing about me is that I, I can learn from my mistakes. I don't continually yeah. do the same thing over and over again. So what I did, um, like I, I use actually technical analysis in my, in my buying and selling now, which I never did. As a Buffett person, I thought that was rubbish. I thought it couldn't be done. I thought you couldn't time the market. Yep. I think I was looking at it the wrong way. I'm not trying to time the market. I'm just reading the market. I'm reading buyers and sellers. If there's more sellers than buyers, and what are they doing? 
You know, whereas I first approached it as if I was trying to predict the future, and I thought, no one can predict the future. And you're not, I'm not trying to predict the future. All I'm trying to do is when buyers and sellers level up, when the price starts to, you know, rather than me trying to pick the bottom, I let the bottom happen. And so I'm not wasting my money and I'm not chasing down. But I used to, I used to chase down and I, you know, I've lost money. I've, I've had companies go to zero. In the GFC, I uh, actually, that stopped me. So another thing that I don't do, I, like lots of investors want to talk to management and they want to, you know, want to get to know. I don't trust any management. At yeah, all. yeah. I just want to see that. I want to see the numbers. I want to be able to verify those numbers. Like what I do is I get out if I can. I'll go to the stores. Well, I can't go to the stores now, but I'll go to the stores and I'll talk to the people that work in the stores. Or I'll ring up and I'll ask questions about it, you know, but I'll never talk to managers because I don't trust them. More like the Phil Fisher sort of scuttle, but approach. Yeah, a bit, yeah, that's right, a bit like that. But, you know, I, in the GFC I got lied to and I bought more and it just went, <laughs> it went off. <laughs> but, it, you know, that was my own, my own fault. I could have walked into Sydney and seen that they had nobody in their offices, but I, was, didn't get, I didn't get out of my chair. Now I get out of my chair. Yeah. If there's anything that I can find out about it, and I've got, like, just as, as an example, the way that I operate now is I've, I've got a company, I won't name it, but they're, they're on the internet, and I've got software that trawls their website now and it picks up it picks up how many items are on their site, you know, how many brands are on their site, and I check that every day just so I can see what's going up and down and just so what they're telling me matches what. So I can get pretty close with any sort of retail stuff like that to get to their, you know, what their revenue numbers will be now. So it's just, yeah, I validate. I try to validate everything. But to get back to your original question on buy and sell, fundamentals for me is the most important thing for the simple fact is I can't hold a position with conviction unless I believe in the company. Right. right? I, I can't buy. I'm not bad at technical analysis, but I can't hold the big moves because I don't have. if I don't have conviction in the company, I won't hold to, to write out the, the, the times. Uh, I don't average down. I have a rule of 20-20. I start off 20% of my position. Like I never go all in on a position. I break it up into like four or five buys. Yeah, 20 is my rule. I put 20% in. I look at the chart 20%. If it falls 20%, I'm out. And then I start again. That doesn't mean I, you know, a lot of people seem to have a problem. If they lose money on a, on a company, then they'll never get back there again. For me, it's just a reset. I start again because I like the fundamentals. I just wait for the chart to tell me that it takes off again. Alan, when you do that 2020, do you, you know, say it's ABC company, do you, it drops 20%, you sell out, but yes. then you you still keep an eye on ABC company and may jump back in. Correct. That's right. I'll just wait for it to set up for my particularly setup that I look at. I look for right. it to break, break out. Once it breaks out, I'll buy again, start again. Yeah. I had that PPL, which, you know, pure profile, I've done that like five times. I've got knocked out of it in the two cent range, and now it's five cents. So I've more than got my money back on that on that right. one. But okay. you know, if you're only losing twenty percent of twenty percent, then it's not that much that you're actually losing each time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just taking sort of, take the small losses. You know, that's what they say. You take the small losses, and then you don't have the big ones. And that's the way I work. And yeah. so then, what I do is, as I go up, if to, I add on as as the price rises, and I'll add on for technical reasons and I'll also add on for fundamental reasons. There was that CalStrix Cal came out yesterday. I was like 80% on it yesterday, two days ago, 80% and they sold um, 
part of, I can't think of the name, but they, they got an investment in the company and validated my thesis. So I put the extra 20% in. That wasn't straight away off the bot. That wasn't a technical thing. That was just, that's a fundamental that's proved what I thought. So I've thrown my, you know, I've gone straight to the full allocation from that. So it, I, people ask me my rules, but you've got to be flexible, I think, as well. If, if things change, you know, your technical analysis goes straight out the window if they come out with a downgrade. You know, you were expecting, so yeah. you've got to be open. And the good thing that I'm good at cutting, if I, I'll sell straight away. People have problems, you know, for selling because they have some sort of hold, the company has a hold on them or whatever. But if I don't, if my thesis changes, I just sell immediately. I don't care what I lose. If I have to take a 20 or 30% loss, I just sold. I did the same thing um, just two days ago. I in my In my report that I just wrote out, uh, Valneva came out and they lost the contract to the UK. I sold out and lost thirty percent on that straight away. Right, uh, because you know it just was my that was no longer what I believed it was. Yeah. So people, there's too much hope, and I think you can't like that's what I have to warn people with small caps. Small caps have good times and bad times, and you can't you can't have hope at all whatsoever. You've got to invest on pure fundamentals or pure technicals, and it says again if it falls. See, it's, it's a little bit hard. So just so the price falls by a certain percentage, and for me it's normally 15% from an all-time high, then I start to reduce my position right. as well. I've got so a, uh, a, a big sort of a, a bigger picture question here for you, Alan. So some interesting insights there into uh, in small caps, the difference between what happens if you average down into a small cap versus uh, averaging up and no doubt uh, back-testing your strategy has uh, led you yeah. uh, to the more profitable solution. Uh, my question is going to be, last week we had Liam Short on the show and he talked about self-managing super and he talked about taking more risk when you're younger because you've got essentially less to lose. Um, yeah. But I've heard you say elsewhere um, that it's a bit like uh, basic science. If you want to get big returns, a bit like in uh, cricket, you've got to swing the bat hard. Uh, but obviously yeah. if you get that wrong, you know, the bat can come all the way around and hit you in the back of the head. And also, uh, or, or maybe a more uh, uh, Sydney type of analogy, it's a bit like trying to pull off a big drug deal. So if you've got, if you're going to do it, go big. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I suppose my question is, if that is the case, how many stocks in a micro cap or small cap portfolio might you have sensibly? And obviously, uh, this is going to be different for each person. But how do you approach that? Well, look, you hit on it exactly. I believe, I, I, I do this in my own life. My son, who's uh, 21 or 20, uh, he wants to be a fund manager because he's watched me, so he's been a fund manager. Anyway, I've limited him. I said, look, I want you to put it into your best, best five ideas. So if you get it right now, it's going to make a difference in your life, future. I, I did it wrong. Look, I, 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 when I first started, I, was, I must have had like 70 stocks. I had so many stocks that even if I had a good one, it was going to ruin it. You know, I wasn't going to get what I deserved from it. Uh, basically, now I run about ten stocks, ten percent in each. But you have to think in that I've already made my money. I own my house. I'm set. I'm okay. I can do that sort of thing, and I can swing because if, if one of if one of my ten percent goes wrong, it doesn't ruin my life. 
I'll just, you know, I can set up and start again. So if someone else is listening, think, oh, I should do it. You have to look at where you are in your life. You know, if you're trying to pay off a loan and you're trying to, you know, you're struggling to get through, you probably might be better to, to pay off your loan. And I said, it also depends on how, where you are in your relationships as well. If your partner, you know, if you're struggling with your partner, you don't want to be out losing money. See, one of the biggest things that I see is people putting everything into one company. And as you said, it could swing back and hit them in the face. And it's not just that, it's the relationships as well. You know, you could lose your whole family, you could lose your, your partner and everything. So that's why I try to tell people, uh, you know, I can't give advice because you need to know where you are in your life. As, then I said, that's the same. And like you talked about uh, super and EFTs and that, that's different. You would average down because you know that over time it's eventually going to go back up. So it's a completely different mindset. You have to, you know, not many people can do both. But, you know, with my super, I actually I actually do that. I, I let someone else manage my super in case I have a brain explosion and lose everything. Yeah. There'll still be super there for my family and my wife and kids to look after them. It's an interesting point you raise about super. I'm I, I not so much now because it leads into my next question, but I basically sort of say to people, listen, I'm, I'm not stupid enough to think I'm the smartest guy in the room. I'm, I'm yeah. smart enough to know I'm not the smartest guy in the room. And as I said to you, with small caps, I put mine and I still have some of my money with a, um, a micro cap manager in Sydney and they have done an unbelievably good job. And, mm. But it, as I sort of said before, I just keep looking at it going, I'm just bloody hopeless at small caps. And it's, it's a, I think it's a business analysis thing. I just don't have the confidence in my own analysis to think about where a business is going. Competitive-wise, I was going to say about the, the super management stuff, do you work that actively in that sense or do you, do you say to yourself, well, I, I'm going to have 10 stocks and I'm not going to, because I don't know about you, but I always get the one that's on the border, you know, the one that's like, well, it kind of fits the criteria. It's like ticks nine out of ten boxes. So do you take it or do you leave it? I tell people all the time I'm not, a, I don't know how other people do it. I'm not an emotional robot. I struggle with those decisions. The thing that I'm good at is if I make a mistake, I just sell. I'll buy something and then the next day I'll just wake up and I go, what the hell did you buy that? And I'll just sell yeah. And I'll just get back. I'll get back out of it. I have my rules, and as I said, that's why I have my twenty twenty rule. I put twenty percent in, and if if I was completely wrong, my ideas were completely wrong. For now, as I said, with with some companies, you'll be right later on. Yeah, you're not right at the right time, and I don't want to spend. I don't want to be right, but take a long time to get right. <laughs> if that makes sense, I believe that. Opportunity cost is a huge thing in the market, and it doesn't get talked about. It doesn't get talked about enough. But you know, everybody's different. My super, I've had, you know, I've had good returns from my super from doing nothing. So I completely understand why people do do nothing. I think you have to love yeah. what you do as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a, um, a question there. So uh, one of the things I'm hearing, you know, you, uh, people talk a lot about as investors, you know, can I beat the index? You know, particularly in funds management. You know, people, if they, they're a few points ahead of the index, everyone says that's fantastic. But I think what I'm hearing from you, Alan, is that if you want to absolutely smash the index returns, you basically got to stop listening to, you know, what people should do and then, you know, learn, well, if anything, sort of experiment with, with, with what you're told not to do because that conventional line of thinking will give you a conventional result. So instead you've got to sort of question the generally accepted views out there. Mike, uh, 
next question then is I think a lot of times, you know, markets seem to be expensive. Um, those uh, glorious times when they're very cheap only come around, you know, once every 10 or 12 years or whenever it may be. And you're talking about opportunity cost there. So do you um, spend much time thinking about macro, uh, the macro environment, macro valuations, or do you just not try and premeditate what's coming next and you just look at companies in, uh, under their own merits? Uh, a bit like, to go back to the cricket analogy, you don't try and premeditate your next shot. You just uh, play the next ball on its merits. I give next to no thought about the macro environment. I don't think about inflation. I don't think about anything for the simple reason that I don't know anybody that can actually predict it. I'm not George Soros. If I was, I probably would. You know, I'd probably try and bake the bank because I know what's going to happen, but I have no idea what's going to happen. Um, I've done the trick. I think when, when I first started, I thought I knew what was going to happen because, you know, you go to uni, you learn economics, you know, this should happen, and it never happens. So basically you're right at what we talked about before. I think you need to question everything that you've been taught and don't just do it for the sake of, oh, yeah, this is what should be right. So basically I, I, ignore, I ignore macro completely. I just look at each company. Having said that, the best move that I ever made was, you know, when we had the coronavirus thing, I went straight to cash for the simple fact that my wife was stuck overseas at the time and I couldn't get it back home. And I sat on I sat on the phone for six hours trying to get her a flight to come back as soon as we heard about it. And I couldn't, you know, every two hours, I was sitting there for two hours and I kept cutting out each time. Anyway, if we finally got her home and I said, this is, this, is, this is big, you know, I can't ignore this. And so then I went, you know, I was lucky and I got out and I went straight to cash. But what happened is then is it's this emotional roller coaster. I think, oh, geez, I know what I'm doing here. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought this is going to get worse. And then the market just V-shaped straight back up and I missed the fair whack of it because you start, I started to impart my own thoughts on the market and I think that's important Often for me not to do that. I just, just concentrate on the, on the actual company and, you know, if it's, if it's right, if it's cash flow positive and if it's growing because they have certain things on the 4C and I'm looking for at least a 25% uh, increase on revenue per quarter, if I see that, then that's... That's my clue that I should be starting to think about buying and starting to own that company and starting to know it better. And if I do that, if I stick to that, I make good money. If I stray from that and start to think I know what's going to happen, I don't. I, I end up in a mess. Pete and I talk a lot about personalities and, you know, you mentioned it at the start, which is a really, really interesting point because, like you, I think all of us that have been in markets for, you know, 15 or 20 years, you realise that basically the trick, there's a few tricks to it. The first one is don't lose money. You know, you yeah. get into markets and the first thing you want to do is make money. So you buy Bitcoin or, you know, something like that. After you've been burned a few times, you start to figure out that, and that's why I was thinking before about your, your 2020, you know, Paul Tudor Jones, you know, the, the sort of trend-following guy who said I, the 200-day moving average is it. That's it. If it hits the 200 day on the way down, that's it. It's all over. I don't care what it is. I get out. If it yeah. hits the 200 on the way up, I'm in. And what he said was his stop loss was like 2%. And he said, if it dropped 2% from when I bought it, that was it. I got out. Didn't matter what happened afterwards. And you go through his selections and his, his philosophy, and it was basically making money simply by saying, I let everything run, and if it falls 2%, I sell them. So by, you know, that very principle, the things he's left with are the things that make him money. 
which is a you know a really really good way to think about it. Look, I think you're exactly on the point. I used to fight the market. I used to think, right, I know better than the market. The, the price is falling. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to keep averaging down because I know better. And then I realised, look, some people can do that, and some people have the emotional ability to do that and hold. But I was arguing and fighting with myself when I realised I'll just go with the market. If the market's going in a certain direction, I will buy in that direction. Yeah. I'm, you know, and it made my life. It made it made like I always speak about emotional capital. You have a certain amount of emotional capital, and if you're losing money, your emotional capital gets worn out. Yeah. Right. I've minimised that impact. I don't want to have you know because I can't make. And I tell people if, if you're in a position that's really you know, you're losing money on a position and you can't sell, I said sell half. As soon as you sell half, you feel a half better. You feel a, yeah, bit, yeah. a little bit better about it. Yeah. It's all about being, you know, controlling your emotions and taking the pressure off yourself to make the best decisions. So what, what I often do is, like, if, I, if I'm unsure, I just sell. And then I sit for a week and I think about it. I don't have the pressure of that company on my mind anymore. Yeah. And then I can come back and make a better decision. But I don't. a lot of people don't. So, Alan, how do you, like, if you've got 10 stocks and you, you get rid of one for whatever reason, do you then go looking for another one or do you sort of wait, like do you wait for companies to cross your your line of view or do you actually say, right, I'm going to go and read, you know, annual reports or stuff to find the 10th company? Uh, I've got ideas all the time and it's, that's part of that mental anguish for me trying to not to get too many companies. Yeah, yeah. I always have too many ideas. And so that's why I've set this limit of 10. No, look, it's, I'm not always 10. I might be seven sometimes. I might get out to 12. But yeah. I'm always pulling myself back down to, to that 10. So because I know that's, the, well, that's where I get my best results from. Because if I have 10% in something like at the start of the year I had 10, I had 10% in this company, it's like 10 bagged. So I know that I've got 100% for the year now just on that one company if nothing, if others do anything. Because some of these small caps do take off and you make big money on them. But if you've only got 1% in it, it yeah. sort of defeats the purpose. Yeah, yeah. Well, come on next, Alan, because what a lot of people want to know, you know, is how do I find those big 10 baggers? And I know there's no sort of secret formula, but I, I suppose just pulling together a couple of the, the themes there that I think I've heard. So one is something I can uh, that resonates with me is that when you're younger, you come out of uni and you do qualifications and you have this, you've learned all these new theories and you think you know everything, but then as you get older, you almost realise that maybe you don't know as much as you think you did. Then eventually you just get to this point of thinking, well, gee whiz, maybe I don't know anything about macro. <laughs> and, uh, you know, yeah. so that, that is an interesting thing. Uh, you mentioned George after, after you've lost a, After you've lost about half a million bucks. <laughs> <laughs> And you go, yeah. geez, maybe I'm not good at this. <laughs> I think uh, I think actually having losses when you're younger at some point, I think everybody has to go through that. And uh, I think you mentioned um, uh, Soros there, and I think one of the, the things you note uh, when you read uh, Soros's books is how good he is at taking losses because he's so confident in his ability yeah. to win on the next trade. He just There's no emotion there. He just cuts the loss and moves on. Before we just come on to the sort of researching the smaller companies, obviously, you know, I'm hearing that if you want your returns to be better than the crowd, you've got to do something different from the masses. What about um, thinking in terms of probabilities? Because I guess it's something we all do in daily life, you know, whether we realise it or not. You mentioned your wife being stuck overseas. You've got to start thinking, right, what is the probability of this uh, being a problem and on an ongoing basis? 
presumably that also applies to small cap investing. You've got to look at what are the odds of success here and what kind of returns might I get, but then also, um, you know, looking at the downside as well. So do you, do you have to learn to think in probabilities? I didn't mention it before, but when I first started, when I came out of high school, I was a professional punter. And I used to back horses and everything. But, you know, I made my living doing that. And that was all, that's all probabilities, all mass. And I, you know, I was so close to going to Hong Kong because that was the, you know, that's the pinnacle if you want to bet over there because you've got a set number of horses and, you know, they were working on software and everything, which was raiding all the horses at the time. And that was what I was going to do. And that's just, that's the one I teach my kids. I try to teach my kids all the time to think of everyday events. If I do this, what's the probability that, you know, you're never going to be right. But you try and put whatever the numbers are in your own favour. So as I said, that's what part of the reason I looked at technical analysis because it gives me a slight edge. I'm all looking for all edges out there. So as I said, I mentioned before, 25% on quarter on quarter growth of revenue. I know that gives me an edge over other companies if it grows 20%. And I was actually read about, um, oh, I can't think of the guy who ran Magellan. His thing was similar. He wanted 20%, a minimum of like 20% you know, quarter of growth. And I thought, well, that sort of validates his, his thinking was the same as, as, as mine. And when we talk about Soros, the big person that I think about of talking is Druck and Miller. And he always said, he's, he, the thing that resonates in my head is that he talks about, and this is particularly important for, for small caps, is when he had his first job, they got him to do a report and he handed in the report to his boss and he said, yeah, this is a great report, but what moves the price? And that really hit me hard, I think. That's the most important thing. It's not me valuing the company. You know, what's going to make price the price market. move? Are they going to grab market share? What's the thing? What's the big thing that's going to do that? And I, like I talked about Caltrix, I said, we just need some validation, which will make the price thick. And when the, I saw that validation, I thought, yes, that's what I want. And I jumped in as hard as I could onto that thing. So, yeah, I, the probability is that's all I do. I, I get it in my head. I do that for stupid things, work out the probability. And, and and my son's followed me into, like, betting on sports and that. And, like, I think I got it from my dad. My dad was really into real estate and he could tell you a house price anywhere in the world, basically, <laughs> within, like, 5 or 10% because he just monitored everything and he monitored all these things and I do the same thing. And I could, you know, I just put probabilities on all sorts of unlikely events and I, that's sort of rolled over into... You know, and I look at sports prices now. I don't bet anymore on sports, but I can tell you if it's a good price or it's not a good price just from just knowing the teams and different things like that. Yeah. So I can't get away from it. My yeah, life is probabilities. I had a uh, Betfair account for many years, but it, it got to the point where it's quite addictive for one thing, but also especially, you know, these days you can actually back and lay odds. You know, it's, yeah. it's a very ad- addictive thing, but it got to the point where, I was uh, looking to uh, buy a property and there was money going in and out of a fair account every five minutes. And I thought, this isn't going to look great on the, uh, the mortgage <laughs> statements. And uh, I did, uh, I mean, as you said, uh, going to the, the races at Hong Kong and Happy Valley, I mean, that is the that is the ultimate for somebody who's interested in hunting. The trouble is I found my ability to think in probabilities was starting to diminish after the 15th beer. So <laughs> I think it's... Uh, it's Definitely one for a, yeah. a clearer thinking person. So, Steve, I know you had a question here on the small cap side of things. I'm, I'm just intrigued generally with small caps because, as I said, they're not my they're not my forte, and I you know readily admit that. 
do you ever think about, you know, we talk, Pete and I talk about mean reversion and asset allocation and a systematic way of investing. Do you ever look, so we did talk about macro before, but when we talk about macro, when I do anyway, I talk about the the idea of the CAPE ratio, you know, and the overall value of the market, not necessarily the fundamentals. Do you use any of that stuff? Let me put it this way. What I do is I my valuation buffer doesn't go out the window. If somebody comes to me and tells me what do I first thing I should need to learn, I said, well, you need to learn to value a company. And then people laugh at me, why do you want to value a company? <laughs> oh, I just want to make money. That's not what you know, that's not what you what you do. And I said, yes, well, I have to have some valuation in my head to realise whether the small cap is cheap, uh, you know, what sort of value it can get to because I sort of work forwards. If I look at a company and it's, and it's in, a, in a certain market and it has a market share, I think how much can it get, how much of that market share can it get, so how big, how big a market cap can it get. So I have to, you know, have, have to understand the upside of the company and, Somebody asked me what's the value. I don't value, I never value present day. For me, I'm always looking at the future. So I'm trying to value what their future can be, yep. which I think is a little bit different to what people try to try to do. Uh, for me, it's all upside. I try to look for upside. But question I'm participating in the upside there. So I look back at some of the stocks I owned uh, from 2010 and 11. I got in quite early into some of these. Uh, you know, 10-bagger type stock. But then I look back and I think, well, why the hell did I sell that when it was at three bucks and now it's at 15? You must have a system, I guess, for, you know, trimming the risk when you've maybe got a two to four times original outlay. But what um, do you still um, leave some money in a stock uh, to try and participate in those huge upside investments? Because that, that has been my challenge when investing in the sort of growth stocks, if you like. I've had some good winners, but then sometimes I don't find a way to participate in the huge upside. Well, I'll tell you, you hit on something that I should have mentioned before when you said about probabilities. Uh, I'm always looking back at my record of what's happened with the prices, companies when I bought it and the prices gone. I have an average, like what I call a burnout, of around three to four times. So if I buy a company, it will go to three or four times the price and then it's sort of, peters out <laughs> occasionally you'll get the ones that like you said the big ones that take off but once it gets to three to four times that's where I start to take money off because I know from whether it's just my psychology or whether the way that I'm built I can buy companies that do three or four times but I'll rarely get ones that run further than that is but that, is that Alan, to- Alan just on that Alan is that like mo- do you look at the momentum or because I I don't disagree with you I sort of think I've got one at the moment that's up 1,900%, but I've had it for like 10 years. I ignored it for like six of it, and if I'd have known it was there, I'd have probably sold it. Do you get to three, four bagger and sort of go, okay, I'm going to flip it because the momentum is probably not going to be sustained? No, I don't I don't flip it. I'll take a large percentage off. I might get right. to take 30% off. I used to. I used to. I'd have that if it showed up. I think, oh, I've got some money. I'll take it and get out, but I've been... You know, like you guys, you just see the thing take off yes. and it just keeps going. Like with Afterpay was really lucky in that I wrote it probably up for, what, 50 or 60 bags for the simple fact it came along just at the time that I've decided I'm going to hold the companies now. I'm going to hold a percentage. I'll sell it three or four, but I'm going to hold a percentage. And then, but actually what I do is I, I still get out. If, if, 
if the technicals turn against me and I, and I like if I sell 10%, if I sell 20% and 15% down and then it keeps falling, I'll keep selling 20% until I'm eventually out. But as it turns again, if I like the fundamentals, I buy back in and I start all over again right. and I go back up. So a lot of the companies that I hold, I've done better because they've dropped further. You know, you look at Mark Minervani talks about his 50-80 rule. And his 50-80 rules is, you know, 50%, what do they say, 80% of the time it'll fall back 50% when they skyrocket stocks and 50% of the time it'll fall back 80%. So I follow these sort of, you know, these different rules because the hit markets repeat and I just follow the, the repeating patterns on those. And if I like the company, I never let go of it. I'll follow it and follow it and follow it. I remember there was one company, I think I must have sold it like 10 at I think it did 30 or 40 times and I was out like 10, 15 times <laughs> because it dropped. It kept dropping as well, but I kept buying it back and I made good money out of it. Right. A lot of people don't do that. They get out and I don't know why, but I was. I used to be like that. I've made my money. I've got to find something else. You don't need to do that. If it wants to give you money again, you can get back in and do the same yeah. trick again, ride it yeah. further. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks, Alan. There's uh, so many uh, words of wisdom here and I, I've uh, realised with a sinking uh, feeling that we could probably talk for the next three hours and not cover everything that we yes, want to. It's so to <laughs> it's, uh, maybe that's uh, something to do over a beer uh, once we've stopped recording. I, uh, what we'll do, I'll put a link in the show notes to your website. So if somebody is interested in small caps and they want to join the chat forum there and read your blog posts and updates, they can do that. And also uh, recommended follow on Twitter as well. I might just edit the piece out about Afterpay because uh, I don't remember if I've told this story before, but a, a few years ago, I was very privileged to be invited to speak at the UBS European conference. And an Aussie guy from Macquarie came and said, oh, you should check out this company Afterpay when it was at like two bucks or something. And uh, of course, I didn't buy it. And uh, for about the last three years, I've been reading every update with a depressed look on my face. That was because I can tell I can tell you why Warjack didn't buy it, because he wrote to me and said, what do you think of Afterpay? And I went, no, nah, I don't I don't reckon it's that good. It's a small cap stock. Next minute it's 150 bucks. The, the only thing I can console myself with is I probably would have sold at four dollars based on past experience. So uh, I guess that's the only the only way I can justify in my own head. So, uh, Alan, thanks uh, so much for coming on and sharing some of your wisdom. And we'll put some links in the notes there for people who want to find out some more. So uh, thanks very much, guys. Look forward to hearing you. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers.